Guess what, ghouls and goblins? The Spook Boys have officially joined Patreon. That's right, they the show as you know it will remain the same, ad-free, but our patrons will have exclusive access to bonus content. Interviews, franchise deep dives, even horror television. Wait, did you say television? You heard right, Sally. Becoming a patron means you're not only helping us keep the show running, but that it also remains available on all platforms, and again, ad-free. For more details, head on over to patreon.com, where you can become an official member of the Spoop Troop today. Got this turned on. Notifications turned off. Okay. I think we're probably good to go. Uh, where is Derek? He still hadn't responded to my last message. Okay. All right. I guess I need to message him again. Oh, hey. All right. Derek, what the fuck? Why are you riding a bike around in your living room and dressed like a hobo? What oh, the fuck is this? You're going to record Watch If You Dare, ain't ya? Oh, god damn it! You're doing your fucking crazy Ralph bullshit. You'll never record again. All right, are you seriously going to do this in character the whole fucking time? Because uh, Watch If Dare's got a death curse. I don't think this is going to work. <laughs> Sometimes dead is better. You best start believing in ghost stories. You're in one. I'm just going to start rambling off. We have such sights to show or fuck what's the hellraiser going god damn it i can't remember where anyway, we're going we don't there. need eyes mommy <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh god damn it welcome to another episode of watch it dare a horror movie podcast hosted by me the craven coward all that jazz and my co-host aaron the movie monster boy which we discuss fears phobias and social relevancy of horror movies across all ages and subgenres, and discuss just how scary they are for horror newbies like moi and horror junkies like Aaron alike. Killer mommy, killer. <laughs> Just you and I on, on this one, our special Friday the 13th episode that is released on Friday the 13th. Hell yeah. Um, continuing on our uh, season of Spoop as well uh, on Urban Legends. The first movie, one of the most popular slasher franchises of all time, Friday the 13th. Yeah, finally getting into it. Yeah, right? We'll talk more about this later, but I am kind of glad we're doing this one before like the original Halloween because it, that one's still just a little too intimidating, but this is a good step. Right up top, shout outs to Katie O'Hagan, Resident Evil's own Mia Winters. She portrays Mia Winters in Resident Evil 7 and Village. This is one of her favorite horror movies. It just the timing did not work out for us to get her on as a guest. She will return to our podcast as a guest in the future. But again, I wanted to shout her out because this is one of her favorites. So hopefully you enjoy our episode on it, and hopefully the rest of you listeners and past guests enjoy our episode on it as well. This is one of those fun franchises that I'm glad we're finally getting into because every entry in this series is kind of weird and different and has a different flavor to it. And more so than like most other franchises, everybody really has a different favorite when it comes to the Friday the 13th franchise. This is going to be part of a discussion I really want to have when we discuss the movie proper because I find this movie and the rest of the franchise endlessly fascinating when you put it up against the other like big 
horror franchises, yeah. especially American slashers. But yeah, again, though it's just you and I, uh, let's just hop right into recommendations for any of our newer listeners. Again, surprising that you're jumping on this late. We have a recommendation section, which we discuss other horror, be it other movies, TV shows, books, video games, etc. And Aaron and I recommend it to each other and a guest when we have one. And hopefully you, our listeners, hear something that you want to check out. So, Aaron, do you have any recommendations? Yes. Being that it is the season of Spoop, I have definitely been digging into some horror movies. And like years prior, I try to always have a good mix of shit that I know and love that's always appropriate for the season, but then also try to seek out some new stuff just for hell's sake, right? So I watched three that all kind of tie into our theme this year of urban legends. These are all three that were new to me. So the first one I checked out, this was a Blu-ray that I picked up from 88 Films, which is a UK distributor that has started putting things out in the US. This is a Hong Kong horror action supernatural movie from 1990, directed by actor Wei Tung. This is Magic Cop, starring Ching Ying Lam from the Mr. Vampire movies and uh, some of the Bruce Lee movies like Big Boss and Way of the Dragon. shit i'm looking at the cover art it looks ridiculous oh it's rad as fuck so he is mostly known for like the mr vampire movies where he is a vampire hunter right and it's usually comedic but full of weird action shit so this is kind of the same where he plays a police officer from a small village who is super knowledgeable about the occult and the supernatural and is used to like putting down ghosts and demons and vampires and all this shit. So he gets brought to the big city to help the like big city cops with this crazy case where there's drug smuggling happening in this whole crime ring, but they are using zombies essentially and like possessed people to carry out these crimes. And it's a fucking blast, honestly. There's fun chemistry between him being the, like, generally no-nonsense, this shit's real, I know what I'm talking about, kind of serious older cop, and these two younger, kind of buffoonish idiots who, like, don't believe in any of it, right? He comes up from the countryside with his niece, and they bust open this fucking crime ring that's using black magic to like resurrect people into zombies and shit. <laughs> His eyebrows are great, by the way. <laughs> yes. It's a lot of fun. I've really enjoyed checking this one out. This is one that I have never seen before. Like I mentioned earlier, I definitely watched the Mr. Vampire movies a good bit growing up. So I'm like very familiar with those. I just had never seen this one. I don't know if this one was just not available in the U.S. all these years or what, but it was honestly pretty fucking fun. Well, I remember you You also did, I think it was another Hong Kong horror action movie where it was The Curse, or like The Seven Curses or something like that. I remember you recommending yeah. something yeah, like the that seventh a curse. while back. 
The seventh curse. Yeah, that's it. There's a lot of Hong Kong action horror movies. It's not just like a weird one or two every once in a while kind of thing. Like there's a lot of Hong Kong horror. Yeah, yeah it's a very interesting subgenre because I remember when you recommended that one a while back. I forget on which episode. I did a little bit of a deep dive into like how many action horror movies there are. Yeah. And a lot of them times they're mixed with comedy too. Yeah. All coming from Hong Kong. It's it's interesting. And it's just fun seeing. So the, literally the cold open of this movie is it's one of the Chinese festivals where they are burning offerings to their loved ones. I, I can't remember what the name. I should have looked this up before we started recording, but it's the festival where they, they essentially buy pinatas of really expensive, fancy things to like offer to their loved ones in death, right? Imagine being like, oh, I'm going to buy a fancy flat screen TV and offer that to like my dead grandparents. So you would buy essentially like, like a person makes these like pinatas made out of paper and stuff of a flat screen. And then you would take that and burn it as like an offering. You know, you're not actually buying a flat screen, right? That's what the gist of the festival is. Right. So the movie opens during this festival. A lady accidentally knocks over her little pyre where her offerings are, which that then like unlocks and summons a ghost into the real world. And the ghost is literally just a swirling vortex of dirt and paper. It's morphing into a fucking brick wall that's then expanding and ballooning like a cartoon. And he runs over and throws a fucking sigil on the wall with his hand that bursts into flame. And he throws a blanket over it that traps the ghost inside the blanket, but it's green goo. And then he ties that up and puts it into a jar and like seals it with wax, you know, and says like, okay, make offerings to this and it won't get back out. Like there's all kinds of very interesting cultural superstition shit that's going on in the movie that's just fun to see because it's so far from things that we know here in the west so yeah i would definitely recommend this one for sure it's a lot of fun i don't know if it's necessarily streaming anywhere but the blu-ray was super cheap on amazon that's why i grabbed it so yeah that's magic cup from 1990 next i was looking up Again, like movies about urban legends, because frankly, all the ones I could think of are movies that either I have seen or movies we have covered on the show, weirdly enough. Like we have covered a lot of the movies that people consider to be urban legend movies already. But this one kind of stood out to me because I was like, all right, this has people I know. This is a weird specific time. There's a lot of people who are like, oh, this is trite trash that feels like a made for TV movie. And there's a lot of people that are like, oh, yeah, I love this movie growing up. I watched it all the time. This is. The Curve from 1998. This sounds really familiar. I've told Ryan if we keep streaming people like that, somebody's gonna throw them off a cliff or something. That's not a bad idea. I think my roommate might be suicidal. Maybe you could tell me what signs I should be looking for. All right. How about listening to depressing music? Anyone in particular? Suzanne Vega, The Smiths, The Cure. You guys know we have a sale on Joy Division? Let's do this. No signs. The university would like to extend the offer of an automatic 4.0. We want to do everything we can to help you through this. The local police would like to have a word with both of you. Was he upset that night? I don't really know. Chris, you were with him a lot more that night. What do you think? Are you blind? Tim is setting you up. We have to do something. We? Everybody. I didn't tell anyone. I got a big surprise for you. For yourself. Natalie's dead. 
Well, that's clearly unfortunate. Think you can solve the mystery? What happened that night at the town? What did you do with Rand's body? You don't have to answer them, buddy. Spot the lies. Chris, let me help you. Don't you know how much I love you? And trust your friends. Now we got ourselves a game. Don't bet your life on it. Are you in or are you out? You're gonna die! Be careful who you trust, Chris. I have to push people. See how much I can get away with and still have them want to be my friends. The Curve. A.K.A. originally titled Dead Man's Curve. They had to change the title from Dead Man's Curve, and this is one of those weird Volcano Dante's Peak, Deep Impact Armageddon things. Another movie came out around the same time that was basically the same exact idea, which was Dead Man on Campus. I do remember these two, yeah, because I I remember more Dead Man on Campus. Which is a comedy. But I remember both of them being around the same time. Yeah, so... These both deal with the, like, weird urban legend of if you are in college and your roommate, your dorm mate, commits suicide or dies tragically, then, like, the school has to give you a perfect 4.0 for the semester because you're (laughs) in shock and grieving, right? I don't know if that's an urban legend that persists now, especially considering how you know, fucking for-profit colleges are. Like, what fucking college nowadays is going to be like, yeah, "Yeah, here's a 4.0 kid? Well, you remember when we were in college, the urban legend had turned into if you accidentally hit a student with your car because, like, the students always had the right of way when they're walking on campus, then you pay for their tuition or something, or they got free tuition. or Yeah. That was, like, the one on our campus, I remember. Yeah, I remember that one as well. So, yeah, that's exactly what this is. It's some guys kind of plotting back and forth about driving their roommate to commit suicide, right? The college is positioned where just outside the campus, there is this giant, huge seaside cliff with a lighthouse that they all kind of hang out and get loaded at. So this is directed by Dan Rosen. He did this dark comedy before this movie called The Last Supper, which has a crazy cast, by the way. But it is a political, dark satire kind of thing about a bunch of liberal intellectuals who kind of plot to kill their conservative peers or whatever. And it's just them bullshitting over this at like a dinner party. Again, the cast is insane. And for this being his first movie kind of thing, okay, how the fuck did you pull off this cast? Right. So anyway, this is his second movie. He had done some TV stuff kind of here and there. That's really all he's done since this stars Michael Vartan from Alias, Randall Battenkoff, who was in The Player, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, The Movie, School Ties, Higher Learning. He was in a lot of stuff in the early 90s. And Matthew Lillard, straight off of screen. Holy shit. This is the most late 90s shit I've ever heard. And spoiler alert, he is 100% just playing the same exact character from Scream just now in college. I'm, I'm dying here, man. It's literally the same exact thing of, oh, he's the guy who kind of instigates all this. He's the guy kind of behind all of it. Obviously, there are more twists involved in the story, but that's kind of how it's set up is he's the one who's kind of nudging this whole thing along. And of course, he goes between his hyper aggravating, douchey kind of persona to like, 
genuinely disturbed, fucked up, I don't trust this guy kind of behavior, right? And then Carrie Russell, prior to her being on like Felicity. So it's got this wild 90s cast. Yeah, seriously, that is very 90s. There are moments of this where it's, okay, this is genuinely maybe a little bit interesting, but then it definitely swings into like, oh yeah, this is like a Lifetime Movie of the Week territory. This feels weirdly like a TV movie. Like, it doesn't feel cinematic at all. The way that it's shot, the way that it's lit, the editing, like, it very much feels like a TV movie. This is one of those scripts where you can 100% tell this guy wrote this during film school when he was in college. It has a very, like, douchey guy college feel to the dialogue and the scenes that are happening. It's just stuff like, trying way too hard to be edgy oh we're gonna have a party scene where all these guys are sitting around drunk and they're recreating moment by moment word for word the russian roulette scene from the deer hunter (laughs) except they shook up a can of beer put the shook up can of beer you know in a row and they're each grabbing a can of beer and holding it up to their heads and cracking it open to like see who gets sprayed with the shook up can it's just dumb shit like that where it's like okay you wholesale lifted this from that movie because you're like this is the coolest fucking edgy shit so of course i'm gonna put this in my movie there's just weird moments like that there is definitely some like iffy sexual politics happening that's very again 90s that you know we wouldn't necessarily dig into now or we would dig into in like a more nuanced way right right so i don't know it it was interesting it is free on tubi so you can check it out nice if you want (laughs) a relic of the late 90s that is very college oriented with that kevin williamson try hard knockoff kind of feel to the script have at it have fun you know i i would say that this was not the worst thing to spend 90 minutes watching, but it feels like a TV movie. That's the worst I can say about it, really. The last thing I watched, this is a movie that we have mentioned a few times on the show that I finally took the dive to watch it because it seemed like, all right, I finally need to check this out. It's late. Let me throw on something that might actually be really scary that I've had hyped up for me way too much. And uh, again, seems to fit the idea of urban legend. I watched... Gonjiam Haunted Asylum. I was about to say it, yeah. This is uh, yeah. from 2018, directed by Jung Bum Shik. He directed Gidam and Horror Stories, which I've seen Horror Stories. I liked it. It's fun. Stars Wee Ha Jun from Squid Game. This is about a group of YouTube content creators who have a horror channel they load up 
all their gear and go to this supposedly haunted asylum where these two teenagers disappeared a few months prior. There's all this background and lore to the haunted asylum that they kind of go into a little bit and show you, again, a very like hyped up YouTube video content creator. You know, the thumbnail is them being incredulous on the front of it. Just stuff like that, right? From like what I, I could gather, it even has a little bit of like a Blair Witch around it because of the real life psych hospital yeah. that's closed down that shares the same name. Yeah, they sneak into this place. They set up a base camp tent outside and they go in and they all have their GoPro cameras and they set up all these GoPro cameras with motion activation things. And it kind of just goes exactly where you think it's going to go for like a 95 minute movie. It is 90 minutes of, you know, these people all dicking around and hanging out before setting up to do this, then like 25 minutes of them getting everything set up, and the rest of it is just lots of footage of the inside of this dirty abandoned hospital, lots of rear-facing GoPro cameras that are like shooting up all of their noses, you know, so you're getting all those weird reverse pov shots of them just running around and sweating and then like five minutes of stuff actually happening so this is one where like i feel like this was hyped up way too much for me god damn it aaron you're gonna do this again this one is so beloved by the org (laughs) so so there's a thing i don't think it's a bad movie at all i just think it got way overhyped for me and i was expecting it to be a little more The the pacing is what throws me. And this is kind of why I'm like iffy on a lot of found footage stuff, because a lot of found footage is just largely so much set up and then 10 minutes of payoff. There are exceptions to that rule. It's part of the reason why I love record so much. Record really fucking gets going pretty quick and is nonstop. You know, this is a movie that I was hoping by the halfway point shit would really be rolling and it would just be kind of roller coaster from there. I don't know. I was definitely left with a little bit of, uh, where's the other like 30 minutes of this movie? It also ends very abruptly too. So that was another thing where I was like, okay, so there's no resolution to this. What did I actually just watch in the last couple of minutes? Cause none of that is explained. And I just wish that the fucking scares had really started earlier. You know, I think we should put this on simmer. Cause I do think this movie still warrants us covering it. Uh, eventually and like maybe you need a rewatch because from what i've read about it it's not just oh it's super scary and that's why people love it but has a lot to say surprisingly about the idea of people just hunting for views and clicks and now in the internet age being internet famous is like all anyone cares about and how that is a different type of fame than what we were yes pre-internet all that is there that's the obvious surface level shit. Yeah. There's not like a whole lot of deep metaphor to any of that. That is all the most surface level shit about this movie. And I was kind of hoping that it would go a little bit deeper than that. So, I mean, yes, I need to give this a second viewing later down the road. And I will probably watch this with Heather as well. She doesn't do great with found footage stuff just because of motion sickness issues. But it's something that I want somebody else's eyes on it. But. You know, again, I think this is a case of I went into this with higher expectations because this movie has been built up so much over the last couple of <laughs> this years. This is going to be 
this is a movie that I throw into the category of Aaron Contrarian with alongside Terrifier one and two and X. Like, <laughs> no, I th- I think you try to make this more me being contrarian than just I found it to be kind of eh, you know. Uh, I'm I have to give you shit anytime a movie is hyped up and then it doesn't really like pay off for you. Yeah, but I mean I get it. I understand. So yeah, I don't know. Like I said, I, I'm definitely interested in revisiting this one. But I think for my money, I'm still way more likely to go back to something like Record. I'm way more likely to go back to something like Paranormal Activity Three. I, you know, I don't, I don't know. Like, there's definitely found footage stuff. Okay, perfect example: the Hell House LLC movies, another beloved franchise. Those by the way. I was largely kinda eh on because the acting in them is very much not good, in my opinion. But I think from a technical standpoint, they were actually like pretty well made for found footage. And that kind of sits better with me, especially as time passes. And those two were also movies that were hyped to fuck by the time I actually checked them out. So, you know, I don't I don't know. I'm definitely curious to rewatch this one. I'm curious to discuss it with you. What makes it endlessly fascinating to me is that as far as Korean horror goes, it's reached commercial success on the level of A Tale of Two Sisters, on the level of Phone. There's even a little blurb I was reading somewhere how that this is the third most watched Korean horror movie behind those two movies, yeah. Phone and A Tale of Two Sisters. And I absolutely know we're going to do A Tale of Two Sisters at some point. I don't know anything about Phone. Maybe we have to add that to our list, too. But both those movies were released over 20 years ago, and this one was 2018. Yes, it's it's now five years old where we are now in 2023, but even in 2018, we were still very much steeped in internet culture, which is where we are now, where it's all about how many followers, clicks, yeah. etc. you can get. So it would be interesting to see, again, how this movie continues to age. It, it's almost like a lot of the stuff around the movie is just as fun as maybe the movie itself, because like I know there was like legal problems with the owner of the actual shutdown asylum i think was pissed that this movie like came out and blames this movie for ruining any chance of selling the land sure shit like that so it would be fun to discuss like all the real and again that's very on brand with the idea of urban legends as well like what we're talking about this this year but i'm not shocked or i'm not surprised that this first watch was kind of lukewarm for you I still would argue that we do this movie eventually, and I'd be curious to see if, if you have better watches in the future. Yeah, definitely. All right, cool. Uh, what have you got? So I, I actually have in the bag five or six recommendations. I'm going to save my more like straight up horrific horror. Rec- I have two or three that are more on brand. Ironically enough, two of them are pretty big J-horror. I'll save those for our, our actual Halloween episode, our last uh, season of Spoop episode. So I'll focus more on the stuff that's a little more tangentially horror this time around. And especially starting off with this first recommendation, because I think both of us can talk a bit about this. Kind of, again, reinforcing that I think John Carpenter might be my favorite filmmaker. <laughs> I went ahead and I checked out his very first movie, 1974's Dark Star, okay. that he co-wrote with Dan O'Bannon, the writer of Alien. It is the future. Mankind has conquered the stars. He moves out to the endless interstellar reaches of the universe. An advanced exploration corps, a new breed of pioneer must seek out unstable planets and destroy them. 
And you are on the mission of the 21st Century Planet Smashers. Dark Star. 20 years in space, one million light years from Earth. Their job is to clear a path for the colonization of space. Travel in an infinite universe with mind-melting excitement from beyond the stars. Computer to bomb number 20. Return to the bomb bay immediately. But I have received the operational signal. Dark star. They're not lost in space. They're loose. This was the movie that they basically made together. And it started off as a film student project. Yeah. It was like their student film. And then it was kind of expanded into a feature length film by 1974. I don't know if we would ever cover this movie or not on our, our show, because on one hand, I do argue that this is a horror movie, a horror comedy, but a horror movie still. But there is a lot of argument for it to be more just like tangentially horror, more like sci-fi, high strangeness comedy that just kind of skirts elements of horror. I don't know. But I think this movie is kind of a fucking masterpiece, even though it is like so shoestring put together yeah. to the point where the alien being that they encounter in this movie is literally a fucking beach ball yeah. with legs glued to it. <laughs> literally a beach ball. Yeah, literally a beach ball. Like, the alien is literally a beach ball. Like, look up. Better yet, don't even look up images. This movie is less than an hour and a half long. It's only fucking 83 minutes long. It's on Tubi for free. It's on a bunch of other places for free. Go watch it. The fucking alien's a trip. But this movie was fucking hilarious in ways I wasn't expecting. This movie existentially was just dread-inducing in so many ways. The plot of it is so fucking creatively outrageous and dark it basically takes place in mid 22nd century think of any like douchebag space corporation like Waylon yutani from alien all that these guys kind of work for like the government arm of something like that yeah and their whole job is to find these planets that are basically going to be like inconveniences for space travel like to make paths to other colonies and other planets these uninhabitable planets that are just kind of in the way and they basically blow up fucking planets. Yep. <laughs> it's these like four or five fuck ups who have been stuck on this falling apart ship for years. When you think about it, this job is ridiculous. The idea of blowing up an entire planet is absurd. The feat itself is so amazing. And to them, this is four janitors stuck in like a small hotel that have to clean yeah. the toilets every day of their lives and nothing changes. They're all getting on each other's nerves the way that they entertain themselves. They are almost like borderline frat boyish, And it's almost like a very waiting for Godot levels of just nihilism like in yes. this movie. There is a lot of Vietnam satire. There yes. is a lot of corporate America satire. Yes. There's a lot of Nixon era, what the fuck are we doing shenanigans and just having, like you said, the most incompetent idiots running things. To the point where one of them wasn't even supposed to be on the flight plan. Yeah. He just so happened to take the place of one of the people on board. They all take these video diary logs and it's all of them just falling into like 
deep depression stuck out there in space to the point where one of them literally just stays up in the canopy on the lookout just looking out into the abyss of space at all times like they've already mentally broken yeah him admitting that he wasn't supposed to even be there he was originally just the janitor cleaning up the floors like near the launch pad and he just so happened to like take the identity of this actual like pilot that stuff was fucking hilarious the part where he's stuck in the elevator is so goddamn funny in such a nothing dread-inducing way because none of the other crew members even realize he's almost dying multiple times. None of the other crew members give a shit about the alien that almost killed him and also, by the way, kind of sets up the whole part of the movie that causes all of their demise, basically. Spoiler alert. None of them care when he comes out of this harrowing scene in the elevator that he almost died. He tries to explain to them, guys, you won't believe what I just went through and they like, basically tell him to fuck off and dismiss him but the part where he's like trapped in the elevator and he accidentally turns on a song from the barber of seville was one of the funniest fucking things i've seen in any movie period when he just like kept hitting the fucking soundtrack all of that was so good the bombs they're using are literally run by ai yeah there's this one bomb that starts fucking up and it almost gets launched twice and then it finally like on accident is getting set up to launch a third time and they're trying to stop it and the AI is convinced itself, no, I'm, this is my job. I've already like warned you guys three times. I'm going to blow up now. So one of these dipshits goes out there and unintentionally teaches it the philosophy of a, what is it, a solipsist? Makes it become a solipsist or something like that. Uh, I wish Lord was here. I, I can't pronounce it. But Solipsism. Yes. It was so existentially dreadful, but it was done in such a way that's so digestible and hilarious. Yeah. That, like, I didn't come out of it feeling a bag of meat. Yeah. Nothing. Well, again, it's it's a comedy, so it's it's not going to leave you yeah. feeling so shitty at the end. Yeah, and I, I was seeing that Quentin Tarantino uh, was one of the people that champions this movie, and he calls it an early 70s masterpiece. And I kind of have to agree with him on that. I mean, I don't think there's a better student film in existence than this one. I don't know. There's an interesting pattern, too, of all those early new Hollywood guys getting actual funding to finish their student projects. So this started as a student project and then they got actual money to then go back and like fully flesh it out as a feature. Kind of in the same way that Lucas did with THX 1138 and Scorsese did with Who's That Knocking at My Door. I mean, there was several of those guys kind of had this opportunity to finish their student films in a way that they actually got put out, and that's now considered a legitimate part of their, you know, Uber instead of just, oh, this was a weird side project did it or a short that I did. You know, Dark Star is considered to be the first John Carpenter movie. Yeah, yeah, and really, like, it inspired their future projects in so many ways. Him and Dan O'Bannon, because Dan O'Bannon, in response to like the way the Alien was received kind of led to the <laughs> developing the xenomorph well also too i mean that's why return of the living dead is a zombie comedy yeah. that comedic thread has kind of always run through a lot of his work yeah you're right i forget that he was part with it too and the budget for this was only 60 grand but like the thing that's crazy is this is all out in space mind you that they're doing this again very high concept these like basically like blue collar workers going around blowing up planets and for a student film with only a budget of $60,000 for it to be turned into a feature film, it's kind of fucking impressive the visuals they pull off. Granted, this movie, and I don't even know if it's even possible given the, like, the nature of when it was filmed and how it was filmed, 
this movie definitely needs a remaster. Every version I could find was the very old, grainy version, unfortunately. It's still a little bit rough, but the Blu-ray that I have is honestly pretty watchable, pretty good. I might have to pull up a Blu-ray of this movie then, because I'm pretty sure the quality, it's not the same. On, that's like on Tubi and all the other streaming places that I looked at. It's such a trip. It's so fun to see the very beginning mindset of John Carpenter. Yeah. It felt very like this is towards the end of the hippie movement. We're now pissed off. We're still anti-establishment. We just went through Vietnam. This is our fuck you middle finger kind yeah. of film. There's a lot of John Carpenter's political and social satire in this movie for sure. Yeah. Another quick thing was, according to O'Bannon, the ending was copied from Ray Bradbury's story Kaleidoscope. So I th- found that interesting. The other thing, and I looked this up after watching it, again, going back to like Tarantino when he talks about this movie, he like kind of posits the same theory. It's never been proven, but anytime they go into warp drive in this movie, it does that effect with the stars where the stars become lines going quickly by the ship that you find later on in Star Wars. What I started thinking and what Tarantino posits is that there's no way George Lucas at this time, him kind of loosely knowing all these people, and everyone being involved with their film projects and everything else. Like, there's no way he didn't see this movie and was kind of inspired for Warp Drive and Star yeah. Wars when that happened. So I found that fascinating. But yes, I don't think this is a movie for everyone, but I think it's a fucking masterpiece. I might have to, like, relook at my, my favorite Carpenter movies and kind of reorganize my personal list on that because I was expecting this to be, like, so student filmy that it was almost... Yeah, it's okay, but it's nothing special, but it kind of blew me away with its comedic nihilism. So yeah, again, Dark Star from 1974. That kind of led me on staying on brand with Carpenter. I don't know if we've ever brought this up specifically as a recommendation. I know we've mentioned it in passing. I have brought up his Lost Themes 1, 2, and 3 albums as past recommendations. I actually realized I never sat down and listened through his anthology movie themes 1974 through 1998 that he released back in October of 2017. So I played the fuck out of this like over the last few weeks. Starts off with the theme from In the Mouth of Madness, which I am excited for us to eventually do that movie. Yeah, I love that one. What a good theme that is. The Prince of Darkness theme is always great. Santiago from Vampires is also like really kind of killer, like Western melody. Of course, as a Halloween theme, the They Live thing, the thing theme. The fog. All that. Yeah. The fog. The one that, it's not even a horror track. Pork Chop Express, Big Trouble in Little China. Love it. That theme fucking rules. <laughs> well, that one I kept going back to. That in the Mouth of Madness, because in the Mouth of Madness theme was actually pretty rocking as well. So yeah, again, these are all re-recordings of past themes of his throughout all his movies from this time period. Again, his son Cody 
Carpenter and his godson, Daniel Davies, jump on to help him through this. I recommend it, especially anyone who's a Carpenter fan, uh, anthology movie themes, 1974 to 1998. This also led me down another rabbit hole. I didn't realize that coinciding with this album's release, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross did a remix of the Halloween theme. It's actually pretty great. It's not my favorite version of the theme, but they handled it well. And they put their like Trent Reznor, Atticus Ross slow build of noise and melancholy to it, I yeah. guess. That's all I'll, I'll say about that. Next episode, I'll have very much more like capital H horror recommendations but i wanted to save those for our actual halloween episode but otherwise yeah check them out oh yeah all right cool well uh let's move on to our discussion of friday the 13th so before we start talking about the movie proper considering this is our season of spoop special and we are releasing this on a friday the 13th great timing in october yeah, great timing let's <laughs> actually discuss briefly the fucking urban legend of friday the 13th and like why that's even a fucking thing yeah so i'm glad you're bringing this up because one of the things was gonna be like oh like how does friday the 13th the movie tie back to urban legends but like the actual concept of friday the 13th is interesting you know for it being such a thing through our childhoods and our lives that like oh friday the 13th is a curse today yeah i have no idea like what the origins of it <laughs> are yeah it's kind of a weird thing so it's a relatively recent superstition because both the day friday and the number 13 had sinister connotations prior to them actually being paired together it's also a completely different kind of thing depending on what part of the world you're in too so at least in the case of friday the 13th one specific example in norse mythology 13 is unlucky, specifically because it's the number of dinner guests that were at a feast of Odin's where Loki shows up, and he again was the unexpected 13th guest, and he conspired with Hodor to murder his brother Balder, right? So, like, that is the story. That's why the number 13 is unlucky, because Loki was, you know, the one who showed up and caused this mischief as he is wont to do. Sound familiar? Because uh, guess what? The Last Supper also mirrors all the same shit. Yep. Judas was the 13th guest there. Obviously, he conspires to betray Jesus. Jesus was also executed on Friday. So there's lots of that. There are several instances in the 19th century where the two concepts were actually folded into one. So... The famous Italian composer Rossini died on a Friday the 13th. There was a character in a popular French play who stated that his birth on Friday the 13th was the cause of all of his misfortunes. Writer and all-around Wall Street crook T.W. Lawson (laughs) wrote a book titled Friday the 13th about a stockbroker who attempts to create a panic run on a Friday the 13th because the day is unlucky. But like I said, depending on what part of the world you're in, it's not exactly the same. So in Hispanic and Greek culture, Tuesday the 13th is actually the unlucky day. In Italy, it's Friday the 17th. So it's not a universal thing all around. But generally, it's one of those that, you know, once there were the kind of handful of 
instances of the two things being put together, it kind of stuck from there. Now there is an estimated 17 to 21 million people who suffer from extreme fear of this day. Really? That many? Yeah. It causes an 800 to $900 million estimated loss in the economy due to canceled travel plans, people staying <laughs> yeah. at home, yeah. etc. So, like, that to me, That's I wild. fucking wild in this modern day and age that that many people are still wary of it to the point that it causes that much of a financial impact across the world. So, anyway, yeah. That's just kind of some weird fun shit, because guess what? This movie doesn't really have anything to do with Friday the 13th, other than the fact that that was Jason's birthday. I think it's kind of fun that we're talking about this, having not even really covered Halloween yet, but we have discussed over and over and over on many podcasts how influential Halloween was, and how much of a hit it was, and how it kind of Yeah. Inspired things to come because Friday the 13th as a whole, it's interesting just how wild and like proto this movie is, despite it coming out in the wake of all these other slashers, right? This came out after Halloween, it came out after Black Christmas, yet this movie is really distilling down all the tropes that people had kind of identified by this point. It has archetypal characters. It has the killer POV shots. It has very specific, iconic gore. There's the crazy doomsayer guy. Like, there's a memorable score. Like, it has all these very specific things that they had identified by this point. And Sean S. Cunningham, like, really designed this movie to be the start of a franchise. Yeah, let's put a pin on on these points right here. First, let's hit them with a little trailer for 1980s independent horror movie, mind you, slasher masterpiece produced directed by sean s cunningham friday the 13th oh hi what are you doing out in this mess one Friday, the 13th. 
only see it once. But that will be enough. Friday, the 13th. Cool. Y'all back with us? Second pin. Here's where I'll open up my thesis and the first talking point I think I want to tap into before we really get into what happens in the movie, uh, you know, production, et cetera, et cetera. Because I think this is a great discussion to have for horror newbies. What's endlessly fascinating about this movie to me, because here's here's the thing. I did the exact opposite of what I did for Candyman with this movie. I didn't look up anything after I watched it beyond just the actual facts, just who starred in what roles, etc. But I didn't read any fucking analysis. I didn't read anything into this because this movie has always been not just the, the franchise. This first movie has always been such an interesting case to me in the horror community, especially in the mindset, because when you think about the pillars of the modern slasher movie where we are now today with it, especially American modern slashers, you have these linchpins, you have the original Halloween, you have even elements of Texas Chainsaw, which predated even Halloween, you have Black Christmas. But I would argue that the biggest ones are like Halloween, Friday the 13th, and then maybe later on Nightmare on Elm Street, which was what, like eight years, not eight years, but like a, a few years after the, another few this years movie. after this. Yeah. Here's the thing that's endlessly fascinating to me is despite this movie, this franchise being such a, an important part of slasher history, unlike the original Halloween, most people argue that this isn't a horror masterpiece. This isn't even the best movie in the franchise. However, this movie is just as important. Whereas with something like Halloween or the original Texas Chancellor Massacre, no one can argue. Undoubtedly, those are horror masterpieces. This is the odd duck one specifically because so spoilers for Friday the thirteenth. It's a nineteen eighty movie. I mean it's it's a it's a cultural phenomenon. Go watch it. Yes, it's scary. Uh, the scariest part of this movie involves Kevin Bacon and <laughs> a bed, and we'll leave it at that. But there are surprisingly number of jump scares that are pretty effective even today. The POV shots are genuinely disturbing in the same way as a Peeping Tom or a Giallo film. There's even elements of Psycho in this movie I wasn't expecting. So just horror newbies. It is actually genuinely an effective horror movie, but I think it's pretty digestible. Great watch for Halloween season. Yeah, that's kind of where I fall on it because this is definitely like not my favorite of this series. I understand its importance. I understand how iconic it is. But there are like three Friday the 13th movies I would put before this one easily. But this is such a good vibe just to like have on in the background, especially this time of year. To go back to like my my whole thesis statement, because like I wanted to bring up that part with horror newbies because I'm about to reveal like Jason's barely in this fucking movie at all. There's one part that is memorable right at the very end that he might be in question mark. But the thing that's so that's hard for me to wrap my head around is Halloween S tier, Texas Chainsaw S tier, the first Nightmare on Elm Street S tier, the first Friday the Thirteenth is it important? Yeah, I guess so. Maybe a B tier movie, A tier movie. That's like the general consensus from critics, from non horror watchers, from the horror community, from fans of the franchise itself. This is like one of the franchises where. Everyone has a different favorite movie, and almost none of them seem to be the first Friday the 13th. And I find that so weird because, on one hand, I agree with it. On one hand, especially after like looking at it in hindsight with all like this history of horror that came after it, it feels 
very formulaic, but it feels effective. Like it feels very competent. It feels like it, it is a very competent movie that is very confident in the things it's executing. <laughs> executing. It's easily watchable. It's easily digestible. It's fun, but it's not as punch in the gut. This is a masterpiece as a John Carpenter's Halloween. But then on the flip side of that, I found this movie a lot better than I was expecting it to be. I did try and go into it with a mindset of ignore everything that came after it. What made this movie such a hit when it came out in 1980? And you're right. This movie took all the ideas that came before it and then really morphed it into the modern camp slasher trope heavy thing that we now all kind of rag on and people like are inspired by or they like play with or they poke fun at and all the slashers that came through the rest of the 80s, 90s, 2000s, etc. I don't think it's as good as like a John Carpenter Halloween. Yeah, I'm not going to go that far, but I do think it, it deserves its iconic role. And it's fascinating to me that no one seems to think that it's the best of the franchise. And, and a lot of people think it hasn't aged quite as well as like the other iconic pillars of horror. And so I wanted to pick your brain, Ernest. Why do you think that is? Yes, this movie was a hit and made fucking what, $60 million on like a $550,000 budget. Yeah. But retrospective hasn't been quite as kind to it as other horror masterpieces and i kind of wanted to pick your brain on that as to why that is is it because jason isn't really in this or or what is it even that is still like the tip of the iceberg because this one movie that we're talking about now spawned 10 sequels yeah a remake a tv series countless novels comics multiple video games this has a huge huge imprint on pop culture, specifically horror pop culture. This was the most profitable horror franchise, period, until the 2018 David Gordon Green Halloween series came around, and Halloween took the top spot. Is it like a critic contrarianism that, oh, because this is super popular, we have to like continually remind everyone that it's not as good as these other no. horror juggernauts from the past? So so hear me out. I think a lot of the critical reception on one hand was valid because, let's be real, as much as I like this movie, it's not an incredibly strong example of the slasher genre. There were movies that had done it better before this one, and then there were movies that did it better afterward. Yeah, I agree with that. But like I mentioned, I think what worked is this movie, and to Sean Cunningham and Victor Miller's credit, this movie correctly identified all of the fucking tropes and put all of them together in one very cut and dry, very streamlined, basic package. It has all the scares timed out kind of exactly where you need them. It has the right amount of false jump scares. It has the right blend of character types. It just works in such a perfectly formulaic way that it's no surprise. It's no surprise at all. It's so easy to watch this movie, right? It's such an easy watch. And it's so familiar, especially now. I mean, people that are watching the movie in hindsight that weren't there when this happened. And I would say probably for most horror fans that are under probably 50 at this point, this was a movie that we all saw way later on TV, on VHS, you know, hell, on streaming. 
most people had already seen lots of other horror movies before this one. And so it does feel quaint in a very interesting way. But again, there are lots of other slasher movies that are incredibly formulaic, that just lean on all the fucking tropes, that still do it way worse and aren't nearly as effective and aren't nearly as polished and aren't nearly as functional as movies, right? Because this movie did not feel tired at all. Like the tropes didn't feel tired in this movie. Whereas all the thousands of movies that copied Friday the 13th, it can feel very tiring in those movies. Yes. Right. So I think that's a lot of it is just this movie rode on the coattails of Halloween and came out at exactly the right moment after Halloween to capitalize on that success. And it used the right combination of tropes. It also utilized some of the formula that we had had before with teenage sex comedies, mixing some of that element in, mixing in the right amount of, again, urban legend into the story. Because again, Friday the 13th as a concept doesn't really have anything to do with this day. There's nothing about bad luck. There's nothing about curses. There's not really any of that angle to this movie but yeah it's more that the this movie is leaning more on the camp shit yes it's it's leaning more on like the campfire tale stuff of like oh a kid drowned in this lake or you know oh this camp is cursed that's why these buildings burn down like it it leans more on that stuff than it does anything that actually has to do with friday the 13th as a day it almost feels like this movie is us actually watching the legend be born of Now the curse is not only applied to just this campground, but now it's applied to the actual Friday the 13th because here's this new massacre that happens on the night of Friday the 13th at this camp that had a previous massacre in the 50s. So there's that interesting detail. Going back to like the other slasher stuff, because here's another thing I I feel like, and I'm sure other people brought this up before, but again, I didn't do any reading into any analysis or anything. You know, we had, Psycho, we had Peeping Tom, we had the Giallo movies, we had these proto blueprints, and then they were further evolved through Black Christmas and Texas Chainsaw. And then the blueprint feels like it was really drawn up with Halloween in 1978. And Friday the 13th took it and revised it until now, like what we think of as a slasher, while it was riding on the coattails of Halloween. It does enough that's different and also just as interesting, I'd say with the revelation of who the slasher is in Friday the 13th is actually endlessly fascinating. I had elements while watching this movie of Giallo. I had elements of, again, going back to Peeping Tom, that I wasn't expecting to be in this movie. There was even elements of Hitchcockian narrative with, you have that one character that is set up at the very beginning who's hitchhiking, and you think they're going to be the main character. And then the actual final girl who shows up, is just kind of there at the beginning, kind of like almost like a Ripley situation yeah. from Alien. So I, I thought all of that was really interesting that you threw these kind of dynamics and these things that could lend to a lot more analysis and discussion in a what sounds like it amounted to like a popcorn hit of 1980. I mean, there was elements of gender politics at play in this movie. There was elements of further commentary after Texas Chainsaw and Halloween. The youth at the time being against this new form of capitalism and proto Reaganomics and everything else. And like the dying of the hippie generation, like this feels 
like the very final like nail in the coffin of hippies even in this movie there are these things that i feel like i'm surprised i haven't heard more talked about that are talked about to death with other slashers from the past and i'm sure they are and i just again i'm not digging enough but i don't know i just like these are my thoughts kind of because here's something aaron like with how much this wrote and rewrote the tropes we're so used to nowadays i thought i'd watch this movie when i started watching it i realized i've actually never watched this fucking movie at all (laughs) the only reason why i knew the goddamn plot and knew basically what happens in the movie is from clips gifs just general pop culture knowledge of horror fandom sure and and the funny thing is you know how sci-fi channel used to play like movies they used to play the fuck out of like a ton of the sequels from uh of the later sequels Oh, and AMC did as well. AMC would play these nonstop, even like not during Halloween. USA would play them all the time, too. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they, they were cable staples for a long time. I've seen more of Jason Goes to Hell than this movie before I liked that <laughs> and I watched it for a show. But, but yeah, I, I just I find this such a fascinating piece of horror history because it hasn't been necessarily as kind as other pieces of history but i i would argue it is very important to talk about and i'm glad we are yeah but i also agree with your points there and i do see the reason why this seems just shy of a masterpiece but it's still an endlessly watchable movie a very entertaining movie and a, a pretty effective horror movie yeah and it's interesting too i mean because again when it comes to the franchises when people talk about halloween i think about halloween i don't think about Halloween 5, you know, I don't really think about Halloween 2. Same in my brain with Nightmare on Elm Street, I go to the first movie. I don't necessarily think of the sequels in the same way. But with Friday the 13th, I never really think about the first one. I, I My brain no usually goes to 4, it usually goes to 6, it usually goes to 5 in a lot of weird ways because that movie is buck wild stupid. Which one's the last chapter? The last chapter is four. So uh, anytime I see Friday the 13th brought up on horror Twitter or wherever, it's either two or four. That's always talked about. And again, this goes back to my very original point. I find that fascinating that no one ever talks about the first one. Yeah. Well, again, a lot of the iconic elements, a.k.a. Jason, are not present. There's no hockey mask in this movie. There is no hulking killer in this movie. You know, the only thing that you could say is in this movie is the fucking machete, (laughs) right? Yeah. And and the camp, I guess. But yeah, that's what's so interesting about this one is it was from the beginning designed to be this really easy formulaic cash-in franchise. And how it evolved from there is so buck wild to me. Because, I mean, you literally get from this movie, fast forward seven sequels in. Jason is now literally a zombie trapped at the bottom of the lake who gets reawakened by a fucking psychic girl and they have a telekinesis battle at the end. Hell yeah. Right? (laughs) Like, just what in the fuck? And then it just gets crazier from there to the point where we literally have Jason X where he is in space on a space station murdering fucking androids and shit he just wants his machete back so you know i don't want to get too off in the weeds with talking about the franchise as a whole beyond this because we will explore the rest of the movies in this series eventually one last thing he has a fucking battle to the death with freddy krueger from nightmare on elm street yeah 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 that happens too eventually that happens. so <laughs> that happens it's definitely one of those things where i find this franchise to be 
fascinating, but it is the best fun, just pizza junk food. That's all it is. It is, hey, I want to fucking get pizza and just do some easy shit for dinner tonight. So you just get pizza, you know, like no frills, nothing fancy. You don't make pizza at home. You don't go out to a fancy restaurant to get pizza. You just fucking get pizza from the place around the corner. That's what Friday the 13th is like to me. So I agree to an extent about the franchise as a whole. I would argue, though, that if any of them weren't actual discussion analysis, it's this first movie. Oh, yeah. Because there is some stuff that happens in this first movie that has, like, very interesting things on its mind, even if it was only trying to, like, ride the coattails of Halloween, even if it was only received as, like, a a popcorn slasher movie. Like, I do think there's some things that are interesting. And so, spoiler alert, I'm going to reveal the killer right here. Either pause the podcast here and go watch the movie or, yeah, or just here we go. The reveal that it's Pamela Voorhees, Jason's mom, as the killer, which, yes, everyone who is horror aware knows this is what happens in this first movie. But still, that is such an interesting thing. That's such an interesting reveal for a slasher. And granted, it wasn't quite maybe the most original because like their Jello films and other things have done something similar to this prior to this movie. But from an American slasher standpoint, it's very fascinating because she is an old woman. But she is wearing gloves. She's wearing combat boots when you see just the boots. And she's using like a fucking hunting knife. And she's taking out young men, too. It's not just women. She is killing everyone. And a lot of her victims are young men who you think the history of horror, the idea of a guy, like someone like a Kevin Bacon, right? A young Kevin Bacon. Yeah. Being taken out by like this older than middle-aged grandma, basically is interesting to me. Um, It's interesting that she is the final villain. It's interesting that that whole fight sequence with her and Alice at the end between them, because this movie could have easily copped out and turned it like into a cat fight. And it really doesn't feel like a cat fight. It feels like a struggle to the death and they are like beating the fuck out of each other. I think that alone is such an interesting thing in this world. That's mostly just dominated by like hulking monster men who target a lot of times women who are promiscuous. When it turns out to be like your grandmother, uh, again, I think that goes back to the idea of this is the punishment of counterculture in a weird way being portrayed on film. Sure. Yeah. I also just think in general, the story of this movie being made and all the background stuff, I think, is generally interesting because it's very much a lightning in a bottle situation where everything really, really just kind of worked out exactly the way it needed it to. Everything fell in place exactly the way it needed to. Everything kind of shook out in a way that worked. You know, and if any of these elements had not happened the way that they did, you know, it's possible this movie just went by the wayside. It's very possible that we wouldn't have had any of the sequels, wouldn't have had the franchise, never would have had the actual Jason Voorhees character. But everything, like I said, just kind of fell exactly in the way that it needed to. So. I guess to kind of start there, like I mentioned, Sean S. Cunningham is a producer, writer, director, and he first kind of broke on the scene in the early 70s. He produced Last House on the Left for Wes Craven. Really? Yes. I didn't know that. Which we will eventually discuss, right? That was in 72. He also produced a handful of softcore sex comedies, including Wes Craven's The Fireworks Woman in 1975, because Craven's one of those guys that made a couple of softcore comedies when he was coming up. And then Cunningham directed Here Come the Tigers 
and Manny's Orphans in 1978, both of which were like Bad News Bears ripoffs. So both of those were like, oh, this group of rowdy kids gets on a sports team. So in the wake of Carpenter's Halloween, he sees this movie. He's like, holy shit, this is a runaway success. Yeah, I can do this. So he knew already from his prior success in horror working with Wes Craven because Last House on the Left was a huge grindhouse movie, right? Yeah, it was. I think it was reviled by Roger Ebert, too, I think. It's like one of his worst movies ever made. I think he really fucking went after that movie, yeah. Well, oh, you just wait. You just wait, because there's going to be some talk of those guys later. Oh, no, it was Siskel. Quick aside, I think it was Roger Ebert who actually gave uh, Last House on the Left a pretty decent review, and it was Siskel who, like, fucking just made it his mission to, to destroy it. So, yeah, Cunningham had already had success with horror and with softcore and so he was like fuck it i can come up with my own franchise and we'll lay down the foundation for something that's just going to be a fucking cash machine you know we won't go as exploitative as last house on the left we're going to make this more commercial more palatable more like teen young adult friendly and just more of like a thrill ride it's going to be more fun And, and that's the thing this movie is not as heavy as halloween right Halloween's fucking heavy. Halloween is a kid that murders his fucking family. It's serious, severe, dark, threatening shit, right? Yeah, targets a babysitter just because she came to his house. Yeah. Just random. Friday the 13th is definitely more of a roller coaster ride. It is more fun, right? Yeah. So he hired Victor Miller to draft a script. And Victor Miller had worked previously with him on the two kids sports movies, right? At this point in time, the title was A Long Night at Camp Blood. Kind of backing up to it's interesting. I didn't realize his involvement with The Last House on the Left and softcore comedy and all that. Because there's still elements of sex in this movie, but it's not nearly as... Yes. Like you said, grindhousey. It's not nearly as transgressive. Yeah, we'll get there a little bit more in a minute. So Cunningham proposed the catchier title, Friday the 13th. Yeah, that's a better title than Long Night at Camp Blood. Exactly, right? It is, but it's one of those things where it's like, what does this title have to do with anything? But it's a catchier title. It's clean. It's already something that your brain knows and identifies from just general pop culture. There was a clean, easy fix, and it was literally all they did was this took place on Friday the 13th. That's it. That's all you sure. needed to do. Yeah, and that is all they did. Yeah, and then you can still have the doomsayer Ralph, which I love that IMDb quotes still literally quotes him as crazy Ralph. I was texting Aaron and telling Aaron leading up to recording this, if there is an MVP side character in this movie for me, it was crazy Ralph. <laughs> um, so anyway, yeah, during a rewrite, they come up with the Friday the 13th title. Now what's wild is this. Cunningham immediately went to an ad firm to design the title logo. (laughs) Interesting. And then immediately put out ads in Variety to, like, sell the distribution rights. Dude, this is a gamble on the level of George Lucas demanding, what is it, the before Star Wars even came out, he, like, had in his contract that he gets so much residuals, and, like, that's how he basically became rich and famous. (laughs) Very much the opposite 
with him where oh, okay. he more wanted to hold the sequel rights and then he asked for the merchandising rights oh got you and okay. at that time they were like Psh, we don't give a fuck about the merchandising rights who cares who makes toys based on a movie the merchandising is where he made his gajillions of dollars and was able to keep the rights to the sequels yeah that's what i meant the merchandise right i don't i, I meant residuals and merchandise not yeah in the movie itself yeah yeah. but he like forwent his actual upfront paycheck for the most part yeah that's what it was so anyway yeah they immediately put out ads in variety to try and sell the distribution rights to a movie that didn't exist to a movie that wasn't made just completely on speculation by like here's a cool logo for a movie called friday the 13th who wants to fucking put this movie out such a gamble yeah the logo rules by the way yeah the logo's great and this was all before finding out whether or not the title was already owned by someone else spoiler alert it totally fucking was so there was already a movie called friday the 13th colon the orphan oh man i better look that up that rights holder tried to sue. I think the whole thing ended up getting like settled early and out of court. They just, they squashed it, right? But again, the balls to be like, here's the new title. We're going to roll with it and not actually checking to see if that title was already taken. Cannot believe somebody would fucking do that. That's incredibly wild. I can't think of any other instance where, you know, a couple of idiot boneheads decided they wanted to make something and came up with a title first and then started making logos and uh, social media sites <laughs> and, you know, all kinds of other shit before actually checking to see if that title was already taken. <coughs> anyway, so all this is over. Victor Miller, who would later write for just several popular soap operas, said that he was kind of motivated by the idea that a mother's love for her child could be so extreme that she would go to murder. You know where he was born, by the way? Where? New Orleans, Louisiana. Oh, <laughs> yeah, he's, mon ami. He's a Nola boy. Mon ami. So yeah, was that a new concept? No, not necessarily, right? Because Psycho certainly played on that exact same idea. Again, yeah, the right? Psycho comparison. Miller was not happy about the jump scare ending. That was added on to the film at the last minute, which was a suggestion by Tom Savini, by the way, who we'll get to in a minute. So this is one of the few moments where I actually like the jump scare kind of ending, especially with the idea that Cunningham went into this wanting to turn into a franchise that does a good job of leaving the door open for a sequel. But it is such a good jump scare, iconic moment. It's the moment that everyone remembers from this movie, besides like the revelation of Pamela. Everyone thinks about the jump scare at the end in the boat. Yeah. Because it's such a like out of nowhere thing. And it is funny because again, none of the sequels follow that ending. Jason is a grown fucking man throughout the entire rest of this franchise, not a like deformed kid, right? So it is just a weird haha kind of thing. So yeah, Tom Savini had just seen Brian De Palma's Carrie, which also has a very similar shocking last minute jump scare oh the hand Blah. Yeah. he was like yeah let's yeah. do something here just to spice up the sending a little bit more and obviously jason would go on to be the root of all the sequels prior to the production a casting firm found cunningham most of the young stars and there was an open audition that was set up for the role of alice so you know he was hoping that he could entice more well-known stars to that role 
and just, you know, let the casting agency kind of fill in the rest. Cunningham originally wanted Sally Field for the role of Alice, which would have been interesting wild at this time. Yeah. <laughs> this was right around the time of Smokey and the Bandit, which Jesus fucking Christ, man. Sally Field is hot as fuck in that movie. But that would have been wild because she would have been older than what they were kind of skewing for with the rest of these kids. And she also, I think, would have brought, you know, a lot more gravitas to the role of Alice, which I, I really do think Adrian King is great in this role. But it would have been like a definite different one of these kids does not belong kind of vibe. Yeah. But kind of like we talked about in the Candy Man episode, where initially the producers were like, oh, of course, we've got to get Eddie Murphy for this before realizing, oh, yeah, he would never fucking do this. We don't have $20 million to offer him, right? So it's kind of the same thing where they were like, oh, yeah, we can't fucking afford Sally Field on a half million dollar budget. No. So they were just like, yeah, fuck it. We'll look for somebody unknown. Again, this film is kind of unique for the time because it very purposely establishes the archetypal characters that would then appear in most slasher movies going forward. You know, the innocent girl, the prankster comedian guy, the stoner guy, the jock, the hot girl, right? It's a lot of that, but in a very like calculated, these are the characters that we're going for kind of way. Kevin Bacon's the jock. Robbie Morgan, who plays the hitchhiker Annie, she was just an office worker at this talent firm. One of the casting directors singled her out one day and was just like, you're doing this. And so she shot all of her scenes in New Jersey the next day. So that's it. Uh, Robbie Morgan is one of the more memorable characters in this whole thing. And she literally shot for like one day. That would make sense because I tried to look up more of her career and she didn't really do much. She is known for this role specifically. So she's in What's the Matter with Helen, which is kind of this interesting vaudeville kind of comedy murder thing she was in some tv and then that was it you know for years she kind of just got married had kids had a normal life and only returned to acting in the last couple of years she was in dutch hollow and a short in 2020 titled mark of the rougarou (laughs) gotta check that out yeah adrian king who plays alice She was also kind of hired the same way. She was literally just friends with somebody who worked at the firm. And she just happened to be in the building visiting her friend when she got spotted and offered an audition. This definitely made her career. Oh, yeah, yeah. This totally made her career. She still kind of, I think, enjoys the success of Friday the 13th. Yeah, yeah. She has been at a ton of cons and everything over the years. Now, that said, she did not have like a crazy acting career unfortunately, but she was a dancer. That was how she kind of started. She's an uncredited dancer in Saturday Night Fever and Hair. And then she's in Friday the 13th, part one and two, but she dropped out of acting until 2010 because she was being fucking stalked and harassed by an obsessed fan. Oh, that sucks. Yeah, shitty. So, She totally dropped out until 2010, and since then she's done some indie movies. Um, She's actually been in some Friday the 13th fan shorts. And Betsy Palmer, who plays Mrs. Voorhees, was actually her acting mentor. So there was a connection there. And I don't know if Betsy Palmer was cast first and she recommended Adrian, 
or if the story holds true that Adrian was just there in the building and the casting director spotted her and maybe she recommended Betsy Palmer. Don't know. Oh, man. Then those scenes they have towards the end with the reveal and then the fight must have been pretty fun to shoot with, with both of them having that connection. Peter Brower, who plays Steve, the mustache daddy who owns the camp now dot dot dot. <laughs> who disappears from the movie for like 45 minutes yeah. yeah he owns the camp is trying to like renovate and get things back up in working shape enough to just throw the doors of this camp open again which man they have a lot of work to do on this shitty camp before it is ready for anybody to be there and they're literally just like paint this shit Fix these doors, fix these gutters. Kids are going to be here in two days. Like, what the fuck? Two days, yeah. 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 <laughs> so anyway, yeah. And like you said, as soon as he's like, oh, other people are here to do this work. Cool. I'm going to fuck off and go to town. See you later. And yeah, he just like disappears through most of the movie. Anyway. And then like a, a giant storm hits and he's kind of stuck in town, but he doesn't really seem to be bothered that much about it because he just kind of farts yeah, around in the diner for a long time. Exactly. Like, he just fucks around with, you know, Alice the waitress. Anyway, he was an out-of-work actor, and his girlfriend was an assistant director on the film. Cunningham dropped by their house, literally to, like, bring her some paperwork, and he saw Brower, like, working in the garden, was like, do you want to be in this movie? And then that was that. He was let go from a TV show right before Friday the 13th. And after this, he was in some soaps. He was in some TV stuff. He is a stage actor and an auctioneer. That is his actual like day-to-day job is he is an auctioneer. I hope he still has that mustache, man. Yeah, really. Estelle Parsons from Bonnie and Clyde and Shelley Winters were both offered the role of Pamela Voorhees and both turned it down. Because they, like, didn't want to be in a fucking horror movie. Betsy Palmer also didn't want to be in a horror movie. Fucking hated the script. Couldn't fathom why anyone would want to play this role. But she needed a new car. (laughs) So she took the fucking role. (laughs) Betsy Palmer specifically is known for doing a lot of TV stuff. She was one of the hosts of the Today Show back in the 50s. She's in Mr. Roberts, The Tin Star. And she was in some TV after Friday the 13th. This was kind of like a career revamp for her, despite her not wanting to like be involved in horror stuff. That's really, at the end of the day, what she's known for now. I, I was reading even when this movie was coming out, like she even made the ill-timed and also not well-aged quote when asked about this movie. She said, what a piece of shit. Nobody is ever going to see this thing. Yeah. And she apparently was reluctant for her cameo in part two. And then I was reading, though, later on, she eventually, like, relented and said she was dumb and that Friday the 13th is actually an excellent film. But yeah, that's that's fascinating because, like, she is very interesting in this movie to me yeah. and actually really enjoy her performance in it. Yeah. And I mean, she was an actual professional actor, right? Yeah, she's like golden age of Hollywood. Yeah, yeah. and she was also a big Stanislavski actress. So she really came up with all the background of Pamela Voorhees and this whole story to create her motivation. And it's interesting because so much of the like, again, let's get into the discussion of sex in this movie and promiscuity and being punished by this killer and that kind of being this Reagan era reaction, conservative kind of thing, whatever. 
a lot of that actually kind of came from her exploring the character of Pamela Voorhees and trying to come up with a backstory, right? Interesting. A lot of the, like, have sex equals get killed stereotype of slashers seems to kind of come from this more than anything, because she envisioned Pamela as having gotten pregnant during high school, being disowned by her family for that, and then Jason dying because these counselors later were up to the same shenanigans. And so she feels like, okay, I have to punish them because the same mistake I made, they're making now, and it led to the death of my son, and I'm not going to let anybody else suffer from that too. And the movie does a good job of showing you that's the case. The counselors were all distracted, probably doing teen young adult shit while her son drowned. And so therefore she's punishing them, but they never outright spell out they were doing drugs and sex and listening to satanic music in the camp. I mean, she goes on a little bit of a tangent towards the end, but the movie never spells that out for you like the fucking sequels do. The sequels are very much just we were having sex while Jason was drowning and no one heard his screams. Well, it also just becomes completely a trope of the whole genre that characters that have sex are instantly slated to be doomed and you know whoever the more innocent girls are girls specifically right who abstain from drinking and smoking and having sex and getting up to shenanigans they're the ones that you know make it at the end which is still kind of even reinforced to this day like can be yes granted we are kind of moving more away from it and having more nuanced characters that are more realistic that's one of the aspects of the new Hellraiser I really liked was we had a very flawed character that was yeah. into drugs, into sex, and like she is ultimately the final girl in that movie. Yeah, very flawed, very complicated. But I do find that that's interesting is maybe that's more of the origins of those kind of analysis and tropes of just, oh, it was just her getting into her character so much and finding that motivation that just so happened to create the like sex equal bad that we see in so many slashers who follow this. There is maybe like that unintentional, though, commentary. Again, I don't know if Sean S. Cunningham and Victor Miller actually had this in their heads when they were writing it, but like there is that intentional or unintentional read of this is also just hippies lost, government won. Now you're being punished for it, young adults. Read to this movie that I find that's interesting. And it would be interesting to try and figure out whether or not that was intentional or whether or not it just happened to be because Betsy Palmer wanted to get into the headspace of Pamela and Sean S. Cunningham wanted to make Halloween type slasher. It's been discussed a lot over the years, but from what I've seen, just looking at this one movie in a vacuum, it seems like the Betsy Palmer stuff is really the only concrete you can point a finger at it and say, like she specifically spelled this out in her preparation and design for this character that this was a motivating factor. And I 100% do think, yes, a lot of that kind of unconsciously bled into the story from Miller and Cunningham, right? Just because that was the norms of the time, right? Yeah, because it had to have, because then you have these killer POV shots that are very voyeuristic and, again, very much elicited to me, Peeping Tom, which was all about forcing the viewer to become like voyeuristic in the same way that the killer is. Yeah. And and so I do think there was that bleed over into the script eventually, because like besides copying Giallo and and trying to keep the mystery of Pamela Voorhees, like why 
take those POV shots to the heights of like a peeping Tom. And, you know, it's interesting. Yeah, I definitely think that there was more there. But like I said, it, the Betsy Palmer thing, I think, stood out to me because that was a very explicit documented choice that was made. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because that's fascinating to me. I didn't realize she spent that much time for a movie that she like talked so much shit about while making and afterwards. I didn't realize she still spent that much time getting to the headspace of this character. Yeah, well, eh, she's a professional. There you go. Professional, yeah, yeah. At least she didn't go out and do method acting. Like, don't tell me she like put on a sweater vest and went and stayed in an abandoned campsite for like three years or some dumb shit. Well, again, during the final confrontation, uh, she did actually slap the shit out of Adrian King because she didn't quite realize that she wasn't supposed to. <laughs> and Adrian Whoops. King was like kind of shocked when it happened and was like, what the fuck? She actually slapped me. And Cunningham had to be like, okay, you can't actually hit her. And he's like, oh, what was I supposed to do then? Throw your fucking slap. Oh, really? Okay. Just, yeah. Whoops. <laughs> I don't know if that's so much method acting or is that that was just an honest mistake. Yeah. Kind of like we mentioned already, the movie had a budget of just over half a million. The production shot during September of 1979 in three small New Jersey towns and at a Boy Scout camp named Camp Nobi Bosco, which is apparently still operating today. Yes, I saw that it still operates, which wild to me if it's still like just straight up only a Boy Scout camp, because there's no way that hasn't become a tourist attraction, right? Yeah. <laughs> it has to. As I mentioned earlier, Tom Savini was hired to create the makeup and effects. He was coming right off of Romero's Dawn of the Dead the year before. Savini's assistant... Tasso Stavrakis, who is in Dawn of the Dead. He is one of the biker guys. He is mentioned quite often throughout this era of Savini's movies. He was utilized several times during the filming of this movie. So like I mentioned earlier, Robbie Morgan, who plays the hitchhiker Annie, she only shot for one day. So all the scenes of her in the truck with the trucker talking with the trucker, none of that is actually shot at the same time, right? That makes sense because those felt a lot more out of they're place. They're a little stilted. Yeah, they're a little right? more out of place. But Tasso is the guy sitting in the driver's seat that she's actually having the conversation with while they were shooting her scenes. Interesting. Because they just didn't have time to get all the reverse shots of the trucker, right? He is also the killer who is chasing her through the woods because Palmer was not yet on set for that day. And she was also like, wait, running through the fucking woods and jumping over logs and shit. No, I'm not in shape for any of that. Are you fucking kidding me? So Stavrakis is the killer in that moment. <laughs> hence the killer having a more masculine profile, right? And at the very end, the moment where Pamela Voorhees is beheaded, the like bloody head stump that's wiggling around and the hands that kind of come up in front of it, groping around that are, very bulky, hairy man hands. Those are Tasso's hands in that moment, too. So, yeah, funny enough, he is all over this. Dude got around, man. Oh, yeah. Dude still gets around, but, like, God, he really was involved with like, some of the biggest fucking horror movies of all time. Oh, yeah. The score was provided by Harry Manfredini. He kind of chose to approach it like Jaws, where you would really only hear music cues that indicated when the killer was present, right? So, like, the movie is largely without music. There are some scenes 
with them at the lake where it's kind of these romantic themes, right? But for the most part, the like really iconic theme is really just in that handful of moments where you're getting the killer POV. So I, I didn't realize I had heard the theme before. The only thing I had ever really heard from the later Jason movies and Freddy vs. Jason is the that part, but they never like would play the actual music part. So when I heard the actual theme for the first time in this movie, I recognized it, and I thought it was from like an older, more classic horror movie because it sounds very classic, bombastic, almost psycho-esque in a way. And it was very surprising that it was for Friday the 13th. Granted, the theme is not as catchy as like a Halloween theme, but I would say it's just as noticeable and maybe iconic as yeah. any horror theme that there is. But I, I wasn't expecting the score to be that classic feeling. Is that the right word I'm trying to think of? Sure. Well, Manfredini was listening to Polish composer Krzysztof Penderecki. Oh, okay. That makes sense. <laughs> what he listened to specifically featured a chorus of harsh rhythmic syllables. which inspired him to kind of do the same thing using the Miss Voorhees line of kill her, mommy, kill her. So it's the like of kill her and of mommy. So that's exactly Ah, what it is, is those two things put together. Like I mentioned earlier, Cunningham put out an ad in Variety for the movie to see who the fuck would pick it up and distribute it. And it totally worked because he successfully instigated a bidding war for the distribution rights. And eventually Paramount, Warner Brothers, and United Artists were all vying for the film. Paramount ultimately ended up paying $1.5 million for the film and put up another million for the advertising. Which, that's another big thing that I think really leads to this movie's success. The movie had literally double the fucking advertising dollars than its own compared budget. to its budget. Yeah. Right? This movie got a lot of fucking advertising. There were a lot of TV ads or a lot of print ads. There was just a lot of shit for this movie at the time. To back up for one sec, it is labeled officially as an independent horror movie. Is that because? Cunningham did the footwork of getting a distributor to purchase it and everything else. Yeah, Cunningham independently made the movie. Okay. And then sold the distribution rights 
to one of the major studios. Yes. This doesn't feel like an independent movie. Like, no. Granted, it looks like a low, it feels like a lower budget, but it feels like a studio made movie still. I mean, the only part that was maybe a little out of place are the trucker scenes, but otherwise, it's high quality. And that's really interesting to me that it, it still had such a small budget and was technically independent. Yeah. And I guess, I guess that also leads to it being such a hit and so iconic in that way. Well, it does, because you think of Halloween, and Halloween was a major, major success. But Halloween was also an independent production that had very kind of low-key distribution initially, and then kind of snowballed. Whereas this movie, Cunningham took the opposite approach of, we're going to make this movie on the cheap, and then I'm going to pimp out the rights to who's going to put it out. Yeah, and put some serious advertising behind it, and ultimately, like I said, it ended up with Paramount, right? So the movie released in May of 1980 and took in a worldwide gross of 60 million fucking dollars. This was yeah. Paramount's second most profitable film of the year, behind Airplane, and it was the 18th highest grossing film of the entire year. But what's crazy is here are the other. Major horror movies, major genre movies that this movie beat out, and it was the 18th highest grossing movie of the year. It beat Prom Night, Dress to Kill, The Fog, and The Shining. Wow. The Fog and The Shining is... This fucking Sean S. Cunningham movie that had a tiny budget that was totally just made to, like, be product, beat out Brian De Palma... John Carpenter, and fucking Stanley Kubrick. Wild shit. Yeah. (laughs) So not only was the movie a huge success, but it was also the first indie slasher to be picked up by a major studio, which then led to the entire fucking deluge of slasher films in the next decade, right? Not only did that open the floodgates to the tropes, that opened up the floodgates to... Everything. Yeah. Yeah. As much as Black Christmas was this great perfect early example of what slashers would become and halloween was kind of the first mega hit friday the 13th really is the first one that started the entire huge huge slasher craze for what it ended up being the franchise american slasher yeah as we know it i would say probably yeah yeah for better and for worse it's bittersweet i think in many ways because there are a lot of duds, but there are also some good shit, too. And even bad slashers, there's just something so endearing to watching them. Oh, yeah. So, like I kind of alluded to earlier, the film was met with a lot of immediate and very harsh reactions. Yeah. <laughs> ranging from just general criticism of the technical filmmaking being very pedestrian to amateur which, like I said, that's kind of ultimately where, like, I do side with critics a little bit. Is this the best made movie? Not really. Is the acting in it great? Not really. Is it pretty tropey? Pretty much. For an independent For what it horror is, movie. Sure, yeah. it's good. Amazing. Now, where I don't see eye to eye with critics is there was definitely a lot of hyperbolic oh my god, the youths are going to like turn into fucking monsters and murder all of us in our sleep kind of fear of this movie, right? I did see this. And past reviews, like a lot of the negative reviews came from, oh, this is just youth-geared garbage. Yeah. This is just going to corrupt our youth and blah, blah, blah. The same bullshit we hear time and time again. 
we just clowned on this idea with our uh, last Patreon episode on commentary on the Black Roses, $5 a month. Go check that out. Patreon.com slash there. If you want to hear us clown on some like 80s satanic panic heavy metal bullshit, definitely uh, check out the Patreon. Yeah, but like, again, it's the very much anti-horror bias that, I mean, still permeates, but like was very much in the mindset of the official critics of the time of just just being shameless and provocative and it was an exploitation of teenage sexuality the violence was over the top right the other thing too that is warranted a little bit but also kind of unfair on the other hand i guess a lot of critics were just directly comparing it to halloween because halloween came right the year before was a similar style movie kind of similar story but halloween was Again, such a fucking huge, unprecedented hit that it was an easy target to like compare this movie to and kind of hold them up side by side. I think the comparison's a little more fair than just dismissing this as youth trash. Oh, well, sure. Or just anti horror bias. Yeah, it's annoying. But I mean, even through our discussion, how many times have we brought up fucking Halloween with Friday the 13th alone? So there is a good reason for that, I think. And I mean, the fact that Cunningham himself said, Halloween inspired me to write this movie. Like, there you go. Right at the very bare bones of this movie is that influence. Yeah. Like I alluded to earlier, Siskel and Ebert took things to a whole new level. The fucking boomers. They spent an entire episode of their show shitting on Friday the 13th and other slasher movies. If that's somewhere like on Internet Archives or on YouTube, I got to look that up and just hate watch it. Yeah, I, if I can find that, I might post it to our Patreon just for shits. They completely gave away the ending. Oh, fuck off. In order to, like, disincentivize potential viewers from going. And then a movie comes along, sometimes almost by accident, yes. that strikes that chord. For example, when Airport came out in 1970, nobody knew that was going to be the first of countless umpteen dozens of disaster movies. Mm-hmm. But it really spoke to people in a way that made other people imitate it. And I think in this case... The first movie of this whole series of uh, Women in Danger films was obviously Halloween, which mm. I think, and we're going to get to Halloween in just a moment, I think it's a pretty good picture, but it captured an enormous audience, it did millions of dollars worth of business, and then the sleaze merchants who came along looked at that movie and tried to put their finger on what it was about it that was so successful, and they said, well, women being chased by a killer, that's it, mm-hmm. let's go out and hire us some more women and some more killers and make us some money. That's why they call these things exploitation films, mm-hmm. these rotten ones, because they exploit one element. And make it sort of sick. Mm-hmm. They even gave out the addresses of Gulf Western, which Gulf Western was the parent company of Paramount. They gave out the addresses of that company's owner, as well as Betsy Palmer's address, and like told people what? to write hate mail to them and how much they are like disgusted by this movie, right? So if you did that shit now, like not only would you be insta canceled, you might be fucking investigated, sued uh-huh. out of your ass. Fuck off, Siskel yeah. and Ebert. So remember that time that uh, Siskel and Ebert literally were like, yeah, we're going to dox the people behind this movie? Yeah, that's doxing right there, yeah. Yeah. Friday the 13th was also nominated for Worst Picture and Worst Supporting Actress, Betsy Palmer, at the first ever Razzie Awards, which, fuck off with the Razzie Awards too, don't care. Yeah, here's a quote from Siskel I, I pulled up. He called Cunningham one of the most despicable creatures ever to infest the movie business. Yeah, him and Ebert berated the film and pretty much slashers in general because again they were part of that panic of they think they make the audiences root for the killer. Yeah, 
So, regardless, again, this movie grossed $60 million on its half a million dollar budget. Yeah, go fuck yourselves. <laughs> a sequel was immediately greenlit for the following year. Horror has outlived either of you. So, uh, yeah. again, back up to this whole idea of this movie and you know so much in art and culture influencing children and teenagers to commit horrible acts of violence. Even Siskel and Ebert, who are lauded as the golden examples of theater critics, even they fell victim to this not trusting their audience and not understanding that audiences understand fucking nuance and understand the difference between fiction and reality. Life's tough. Sometimes I want to watch somebody eviscerate teenagers in the forest and it's entertaining. I could still walk away from that and then be a fucking human being with empathy. It always bothers me so much when not just critics, but media and politics in general, just they yeah. think audiences are so easily swayed and don't understand fiction from reality and don't understand nuance. It's just, it, it, it's mind boggling to me that we repeat that over and over and over again. And every single time it's not true. Well, again, kind of like I had a short diatribe during our, Black Rose's commentary where, you know, there is that moment where the mayor of the town is like, yo, parents, slow your fucking roll. Stop railing on your fucking kids for being into heavy metal and how it's all about sex and partying and everything else. Uh, remember when all of you motherfuckers were like deeply into the fucking Beatles and Elvis and all of that was also about fucking sex and drugs and partying and rock and roll. So kind of like there's that moment where that character kind of calls out the older generation for their hypocrisy. <laughs> you right? guys went to New York Dolls concerts and they dressed up in drag. Like, what the fuck? Actually, I don't know if the New York Dolls dressed in drag. Glam. Glam. They were glam. Yeah. 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 I don't want to say the wrong thing and mess it up. They were part of that glam movement. And then, again, like you grew up with these same things. It's fucking wild to me that Black Roses of all the movies has that moment. And it's that character who delivers that whole speech. Yeah. So kind of like I mentioned there, I'll say it again here too. The people who are griping and complaining about this movie at this time being violent and being exploitative and everything else largely didn't have any fucking problem with Vietnam, with the civil rights movement, with any of that violence being just broadcasted on TV into people's homes directly, Yeah, right? This is also a lot of people who clutch their fucking pearls at stuff like this, but then like 100% are fine with all kinds of other systemic abuse. And physical and sexual violence towards women being normalized in other ways, right? Like, oh, if we see it on screen in a horror movie, oh, that's bad. But we're just largely going to turn a blind eye to, like, that being part of regular culture during this time where people couldn't easily get divorced. And, you know, living apart from your partner was more difficult, right? There's just, there's a lot of hypocrisy in that, I find. A lot of the hand-wringing is just very false and very hypocritical. When again, this is one of those things where, like you said, not giving audiences the benefit of the doubt that they can distinguish between fiction and reality. You know, when again, reality in so many ways is so much more fucked up at the end of the day. Well, and kind of the two points I want to make too is, and not just to excuse 
oh, like the people who watched this movie in 1980 and loved it, a lot of them probably fell victim to the same thing because now they're the people who are waging these culture wars across the country too for similar bullshit. And so it's the cycle keeps going. It's the Ouroboros of the snake eating its own tail. Like yeah. No one's learning. The lesson is these same people are waging these culture wars and politics and everything else probably grew up wanting to watch Friday the 13th and their parents telling them, no, it's going to turn them into vicious killers when their parents were like obsessed with like Led Zeppelin and the Beatles and fucking Black Sabbath when their parents were saying that was all Satan music. So it's like we don't learn the lesson. We never learn the lesson. And I know I brought up this song specifically on a past episode under a recommendation, but the Weird Al song Nature Trail to Hell, which is basically a parody that was born out of Friday the 13th and the slashers being popularized. The one lyric he says is, so bring the kids along. It's good, clean family fun. What have you got to lose? If you like the six o'clock news, then you'll love nature trail to hell. And like, there you go. Like fine with all this stuff on the news then, right? What's the problem? Otherwise you're being a hypocrite. It's important to talk about these things because yes, how many times have we brought up, you know, video games lead to violence in the streets, but it all started with shit like this and then so on and so forth back in time, all the way to like Elvis becoming popularized and all these people gyrating and everything else. And it's just a lesson we never seem to learn. I think movies like this and pieces of media like Friday the 13th are an interesting case study of even just looking at outside of what happened when the movie was released. Where was culture? How did it respond to it is not just interesting to look at and talk about, but I think it's also important because I do think vilifying art like this never really leads to anything uh, productive. Yeah. And at the end of the day, too, like, I can't say there aren't examples where people are not influenced by or inspired by a movie or TV show or video game or music or whatever to do something horrible. But generally, as we've seen at the root of pretty much every single one of those instances, it doesn't matter what the thing is that's being blamed. The general root cause of it is always unchecked and uncared for mental illness. It is a lot of access to fucking weapons and firearms. It is a lot of people like not being there to offer the support that that individual needs. And then bad things happen. It is often a lot of societal things. It's a lot of like post-capitalism pressure and bullshit that people are under that largely drives them to do the things that they do. Not movies, not TV shows, not music, you know. Or the people who are attacking movies like this. It's really their insightful comments that they say otherwise that are probably more influential to these people to commit violence. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, we're not going to get way off in the weeds with the franchise as a whole, but just in general, Cunningham would go on to direct only a handful of movies, right? He didn't direct any of the sequels after this one. He directed A Stranger's Watching, The New Kids, and Deep Star Six, which those are kind of the only genre titles that he directed after this. I love Deep Star Six specifically. I've never even heard of Deep Star Six. I mentioned it on the show as a recommendation. It is very much one of the like post alien, but this time it's underwater ripoffs. Oh, yeah. yeah okay. I do. Now I, I remember that. Yes, yeah. yes. Yes. He gets a characters created by writing credit on all the future Friday the 13th projects. 
main thing is, though, he would go on to produce all the movies in the House franchise, not the Japanese movie House. No. Um, this is <laughs> the, like, horror comedy House, right? And then he produces all of the New Line era Friday the 13th movies, which that's Jason Lives, Jason X, Freddy vs. Jason. Victor Miller, who wrote the screenplay, would go on to mostly write soaps. And he also received a characters created by writing credit on all the future products. I bring all this up to say, and I'm, I'm going to mention it here at least, because all of this recent you know, event is more kind of tied to this first movie than like the franchise as a whole. There was a long and very messy lawsuit regarding the franchise rights, which is why there have been zero new projects to happen in the last decade plus. Yeah, I was about to ask you that because this and uh, Nightmare on Elm Street really have kind of just been dead in the water for a while. Nightmare on Elm Street, I think more... There haven't been as many pitches for Nightmare on Elm Street. I think also the remake of that was so fucking unsuccessful. Yeah. And I think a lot of it was because people just fucking realized, oh, you can't replace Robert England as this character. I remember when that remake was coming out, you in college were skeptic but hopeful about it. And you thought, who was it? Uh, Jackie Earl Haley. Yeah, Jackie Earl Haley was actually a pretty good replacement for him. I think that's an interesting choice. It did not work out ultimately. Like yeah, the, and the way I, that they went with that script and that version. Of the I remember movie. the movie came out and you came over to our house for a party or just like to hang out and drink beers or something. And you had seen it like opening night or something. And I remember you had been on edge to see it. And you were just like in near depression. <laughs> like You were like, yeah, that it was, was not good. That was not it, man. <laughs> but, you know, the, the kind of miracle of how Friday the 13th ultimately ends up working is any big giant motherfucker can play Jason pretty much, which that was literally the case all the way up until what? The sixth movie, seventh movie? I can't remember. I think Kane Hodder came in for seven and then was yeah. Jason kind of from that point on for the most part. Kane Hodder is the one who's like, is mostly attached to Jason when you think of like Jason actors. Though, mostly because he's yeah. the only person that played Jason multiple times. I believe I, I, I want to say that literally the first five, six movies, it was all different people. I want to say maybe six is where Kane Hunter comes on. I can't remember anyway. Yeah. The beauty of the character is he's always wearing a mask. You know, he's always got the hockey mask on or inevitably at the end, if the hockey mask gets yanked off, it's always some monster face, right? So anybody can play Jason, you know? But it's one of those things where, again, I've heard so many interesting, this is what we want to do. We want to do a prequel. We want to do a sequel. We want to do Camp Crystal Lake in winter. You know, we want to have like the lake frozen and have snow, right? Jason in the snow would be such a cool thing. There was a pitch a couple of years back of, we want to do it hardcore found footage. That's very similar to the pitches uh, that I read in that Taking Shape 2 book with all the yeah. uh, unused scripts from uh, the Halloween franchise, like Michael Myers in the snow. Yeah. So there were a lot of interesting pitches. There were a lot of, we want to develop this as a remake. We want to develop this as a TV series. We want to develop this as a prequel, whatever. And just none of those have come to fruition because it always runs into like, well, shit, 
who do we even set this up with? We have no idea, right? Like we have no idea whose permission we have to have. We have no idea who actually owns any of this. We have no idea who we can actually go through to like make this movie. That's been a lot of what's been fucking up this franchise for the past bunch of years. And ultimately, it seems that things have finally gotten resolved as of 2021. Victor Miller was claiming that the rights, once they had been transferred from like one production company successfully to another, that effectively what that meant was legally he then regained the rights because that transfer of ownership couldn't happen without him like giving up or something or I don't know. It's weird, complicated legal bullshit that I probably should have asked my wife about. Ultimately, there was kind of this argument about who owned the rights to the franchise and like the name Friday the 13th, who owned the rights to the Jason character, because obviously there's not really the Jason Voorhees character in this first movie, but that's what the entire fucking franchise is ultimately built around, right? Cunningham was kind of saying that the rights remained with the company that hired Victor Miller, because he was just a contracted writer for hire, and that was the distinction, was whatever Miller wrote was still ultimately owned by the production company under which he was hired, right? But in late 2018, the courts granted the rights to Miller, cutting him appealed, okay. and then the courts upheld Miller's verdict in 2021. So, you know, however things shake out now, it seems like If any further projects are going to be made, 100% Victor Miller has to be involved somehow or another or give approval somehow or another. That is a little bit of a bummer. I would have liked to have Cunningham and Miller like attached to whatever future project comes up. Well, like you were saying a second ago, there was talks recently, like as of the last two years of we're going to develop a remake we're going to develop a sequel. We're going to develop a TV show. There's like three kind of competing ideas. And I want to say Cunningham is involved with at least two of them. So he's not totally out of the picture. I think it's more just that Victor Miller now actually has say in what happens and gets a cut of things. And beforehand, he was totally out of the loop. Like he got a very nominal writing credit for the other movies characters created by kind of thing but wasn't actually making money off of them or some shit so that's kind of where things are now like i said i I really only dip into that whole idea of the franchise because again it all directly ties back to this very first movie as far as the rest of the cast goes that we haven't mentioned it's kind of interesting to see how few of these people went on to do anything else with their (laughs) careers yeah Who knows what would have happened to the career of Kevin Bacon, am I right? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Harry Crosby, who plays Bill, son of Bing Crosby. This was his debut movie. He also did some TV afterward. And since the late 80s has been involved in investment banking. Laurie Bartram, who played Brenda, was in The House of Seven Corpses and a soap opera. Um, But she left the entertainment industry entirely. Mark Nelson, who played Ned. This was also his debut. He has done a lot of TV and stage acting since. Janine Taylor, who played Marcy. This was also her debut. She was in a soap. She was on some TV movie about Princess Diana. She since has been in marketing, so she didn't really go on to do anything after this. 
Um, there was some guy named uh, Kevin Bacon. Uh, I don't really think he went on to do a whole lot after this. <laughs> and then our favorite character, Crazy Ralph, Ralph the Doomsayer, is played by Walt Gorney. Don't go down that road. He was in the De Laurentiis 70s King Kong. He's in Day of the Animals. He also appears in Friday the 13th Part 2. He is one of the very, very few people Adrian King and Betsy Palmer being two others who have actually appeared in more than one entry in this franchise. He was also in Endless Love and Trading Places. So, yeah, that is pretty much it. This movie has a bunch of other fun, goofy characters like the motorcycle cop who shows up and, you know, is trying to be like hip, cool, high teenagers. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. Fellow teens, I understand. Yeah. You dig? Smoking that grass, that Colombian brush or whatever the fuck he was calling it. And again, we went from Candyman to Friday the 13th, another like, what else can be said? But I think I think we did a good job of putting our personal touch on on this movie. And, you know, hey, we, we do have a lot of listeners who are horror newbies and come to us for this kind of stuff. So hopefully we did it justice. But uh, yeah, is there anything, any final thoughts from you or? No, nah, I mean, I think that's, you know, pretty much all we can talk about for this first movie, at least. The blueprint for modern slashers. <laughs> yes. I am very excited to kind of get into the sequels of this, because like I mentioned, I like a lot of the sequels more than this first movie. And a I lot think of people do. a lot do. more like wild, what the fuck stuff to talk about involving the sequels. Hey, who knows? Maybe we can get Katie O'Hagan on for one of the sequels. Yeah, I'm totally. Sure she likes the sequels as well. Well, it's just fun to like my mother-in-law, Renee... Hi, Renee. Love you. She has fond memories of going to see the third movie with a lot of her friends, and it was 3D. And, uh, you know, has told us she remembers jumping at the scene where the eyeball gets poked through the door. I just remember the yo-yo. The yo-yo that's obviously supposed to be in 3D. I definitely like the fourth movie a lot, which that's, you know, a fan favorite. That's the one with Corey Feldman. You know, there's a lot of Oh, I can relate to this weirdo monster kid who's into horror shit and people kind of think he's an oddball. Yeah. And he ends up saving the day at the end because he, you know, understands he's in a movie, right? He fully kind of gets the assignment and knows what to do. I know Patrick Bromley, host of F This Movie, is a huge fan of the fifth movie, uh, which is buck wild fucking ludicrous. Again, Jason Lives is a fucking wild, insane who came up with this idea meta kind of thing same with jason x (laughs) yeah same with jason x every slasher franchise eventually has to go into space so yeah i don't know it's fun the entire idea of this franchise is fun i've read a couple of the comics that have come out over the years they're fun the video game that came out a couple years ago that was like an asymmetrical stalker apparently is pretty good it's pretty good they fucking abandoned support for it already, so, you know, it sucks because you can't pick up and play it anymore. I think because Dead by Daylight was already there. Basically, <laughs> like, yeah. Dead by, Dead by Daylight yeah. already had that game's lunch before it even came out. They may as well just put Jason in Dead by Daylight because all yeah. the other fucking war killers are in it. But it did suck because that team put a lot of work into the game and got... Oh, no, they did a lot of the original people back to like do voice work to recreate their likenesses for the game. Yeah. Same with the the recent evil dead game. They did a lot of work on having every single version and appearance of Jason in the game. There's a lot of fun shit that has spun off 
around this franchise. Hell, there are even spoofs of this franchise specifically. Unmasked Part 25 is specifically kind of making fun of this whole thing. The hockey mask in and of itself has literally become, you know, a fucking weird pop culture meme. Fucking Christmas Vacation literally pops to mind where Clark Griswold shows up with the chainsaw to cut the Christmas tree down. And he's got the hockey mask on and they turn it into like a moment of slasher movie. <laughs> I mean, and the hockey mask doesn't even appear until like three movies in anyway. Till the third so. movie. Exactly. Yeah. So it's, it's wild how much of a cultural impact, you know, stemmed from this very first movie. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a perfect sum up of it. So cool. That's Friday 13th. Exploring the urban legend of a cursed lake, a cursed day, and the bloodbath that happened on a cursed lake and cursed day. Yep. We are Watch of Dare Horror Movie Podcast, hosted by me, Coward, and Aaron Movie Monster Boy. Please check us out on all of the available podcatchers, especially Apple, Spotify, Podchaser, Good Pods. Please consider reviewing us five stars, please. Uh, that's where we get most of our reviews. Those really help consider following us at your favorite podcatcher shout out to your little brother jesse mansfield to the bumps at the beginning ends of each episode especially the special season of spoop bump that we play at the beginning of each yeah. episode for october check out all his music at party gator and Bandcamp, opossums big cloud all his stuff speaking of music we have a spotify music playlist you can get to it from our facebook page as well as a link on our Podbean website speaking of our facebook page we have now passed and growing pretty steadily over a thousand followers and likes which is crazy so thank you guys for joining us hope we can continue to deliver the content you continue to enjoy please consider joining our patreon for just five dollars a month you get access to bonus content we've been doing actually a lot of uh, commentary tracks lately probably do another tv series deep dive soon uh maybe do another one-off episode where aaron and i do a list or talk about something else horror related yeah trying to keep it fresh keep it rotating yeah there's over a dozen uh, hours of bonus content on there. And again, it's only $5 a month. Please consider joining. If we Once we get enough patrons, we'd love to open up new levels of support, including like t-shirts or helping us decide what movies to do in the future. Follow us on Twitter at Watch of Dare, Facebook at Watch of Dare. I think that's it for the socials. And I think that's it. Aaron, do you have any final thoughts? Kill her, mommy. Kill her. Don't let her get away, mommy. Don't let her live. I won't, Sally. I won't. <laughs> <laughs>